Welcome to another episode of Culinary School Stories, the weekly podcast that is dedicated to sharing the stories of people around the globe whose lives have been influenced, impacted, touched, and or enriched, for good or for bad, from their culinary school experience. Hi, my name is Colin Roach and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. You are an important part of this show where we ask the question, what's your culinary school story? So now, without any further delay, let's meet today's guest. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Culinary School Stories podcast, a proud member of the Food Media Network. And if you have not yet subscribed to the show, please do so. It is free, and we would love to have you as part of our community. You can subscribe through your favorite podcast apps, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or you can do it through our website at www.culinaryschoolstories.com, which is also where we will store all the past episodes and the guests' bios and show notes. So be sure to check that out and sign up for our newsletter. So now without any further delay, I would like to introduce today's guest who is a pastry chef and educator. And as a four-time Food Network competitor, he is also well-known master cake designer. With that said, it is my pleasure to welcome Chef Derek Corsino to the show. Derek, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great. And wow, you've had such a great career so far, and we have so much to get to. But I wonder if we could, you could first start out by telling us where did your love of baking first come from? Oh, you know, when I think about that, I go all the way back to I was a little kid. And way back in the, the early days of Food Network, where we're talking your early 90s at this point, um, during the day, there, there was no competitions or anything. You know, it was you and somebody teaching you how to cook. Uh, it was just you and the host. And that's it. And they're in a the kitchen. And I remember distinctly either whether it was after school uh, and I would just tune on the Food Network uh, after watching my cartoons. Uh, and it was always just really captivating. But what I really remember is those days that you're homesick. What are you going to do? You have no idea what's on TV because you're always busy all morning, you know, learning whatever at school. Mm-hmm. Um, so after you're, you're done watching The Price is Right, well, what are you going to watch now? Right? Then I always ended up gravitating towards the Food Network. Um, so like learning how to bake with, with Emeril Lagasse uh, and Sarah Moulton and Mario Batali and all of their original shows where... There was no glitz and glam yet. Uh, there was no travel yet. Um, that's really where a lot of this kind of came from. Um, and that kind of segued into uh, eventually kind of choosing it as a career because uh, I come from a family of artists. Um, I myself, uh, I'm, a, I'm a sculptor. I'm a painter. I do dabble in a little bit of everything, um, as you can see behind me. Everybody can't see me, but I'm in my own <laughs> built tiki bar here. Um, so I still do it today. but. I found my creative outlet in the expression of food uh, and specifically cake decorating when I was eight years old. Was there a baker already in your family? Do you remember anything like making brownies or anything or just you were the first? So often when I think about where like the root of that, I get that question a lot like, oh, there must have been somebody who like heavily influenced you. And it's like, well, most of the baking at home often came out of a box. So Betty Crocker, perhaps, um, <laughs> the Pillsbury Doughboy. Um, so, I mean, the, the biggest thing is like my grandmother always did scratch baking. And I remember growing up and making her or what we refer to as her famous apple pie that, you know, she would always do scratch crust, scratch everything. Um, but uh, a lot of times growing up, it was like, oh, you want brownies? Well, here's a box. Add the oil, add the eggs, a little bit of hot water and, and mix. 
So in reflection, I feel like a lot of my passion for food today stems from the, those ambitions past the box. <laughs> yeah. That's, that was my house too. It was a box and people always ask, was your mother a good cook? And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's why I became a good cook because I wanted to experiment. So it's kind of the opposite, but so how did that creative part, that artist part, take you to culinary school? What did, did you go right into culinary school? Did you try something else first? Did you know from the start that it was going to be culinary school all the way? You know, I went straight into culinary school. And when I started thinking about my first formalized education, uh, I really got a, you know, hats off to mom. Um, she ran a, uh, a craft uh, kind of workshop area and uh, they had cake decorators come in to teach cake decorating. And since I had a little bit of an interest, it was like, oh, well, I'm running it. So here, just come in. You get to take classes for free. So I got to like first get my feet wet at a very young age. And like, oh, well, this is really fun. I took to it really well, really fast. Uh, it was me and like the older ladies in the class. And they're like, who is this kid here um, doing this cake decorating and like getting it perfect the first shot? Uh, my first rose was like sellable when I was like piping it on onto my little rose needle. Um, and then that trickled down to like kind of you, you get into middle school, of course, everybody takes home ec. Um, but obviously I was overachieving uh, in my home ec class, which led into my high school. Now, my high school, uh, Arlington High School in LaGrangeville, New York, uh, back home, um, really had a robust program. Uh when I kind of look at that and like where I teach today, uh, we've come very far in, in 20 years. Uh, I teach in a full commercial kitchen. There it was this weird blend of home ec and a commercial kitchen yeah. uh, had aspects of both stainless steel tables, but your spices are coming from this like antique wood cabinet. Um, <laughs> so it had a little bit of everything, but my teacher was uh, Connie Zangline uh, who has since uh, retired, but she, I think early on saw that, that passion of mine uh, and that interest. And it's interesting because in middle school, early high school, I didn't really know whether I wanted to be a baker or, or go into the culinary, the hot side. I hadn't quite figured that out. Uh, and I think it was kind of her who, who saw my attention to detail, my, my need to be precise, <laughs> um, which really lent into the baking side of things. Uh, and we were a stone's, stone's throw away from CIA in Hyde Park. Right. Um, I grew up in Poughkeepsie. The next town north is Hyde Park. Oh. It's right there. It was 15 minutes away. So when it came to choosing a culinary school, uh, I had a couple, you know, vying for me. Like, oh, you want to come here? I mean, you want to come here? I'm like, well, I mean, CIA is in my backyard. I've been there on a field trip probably five or six times. Yeah. I could probably give the tour before I was even a student. So it was pretty much done in stone there. You were going there because it was close. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of funny. So I did some competitions with um, FCCLA mm -hmm. when I was in high school. And I won for baking my junior year, culinary my senior year. I got a lot of scholarship offers. I was offered a full ride to Johnson & Wales. Wow. I only had a couple thousand a semester in scholarships lined up with CIA. So when it came down to decision, my parents are like, well, at the end of the day, this is your decision. But, but Providence is looking. <laughs> Providence is looking pretty good for us because it's free. <laughs> and it's like, well, but CIA seems more a fit for me. And it's funny because now as a teacher, I, I talk to Johnson & Wales and I, I throw it as a viable option out to my students. I try to take my own bias out of things, which is quite difficult. Um, 
And it's like, well, you can kind of do what you want. Here's my opinion if you want it, um, but here's what's out there. So I kind of find myself in my parents' shoes as well uh, all these years later. But uh, push came to shove. It was baking and pastry all the way at CIA. Yeah, I do a lot of you know interviews on this show, and I always ask, why'd you pick the school? And so many times it comes down to, well, my culinary instructor in my high school told me about it, or a chef they're working with, that's where they went, they told mm-hmm. So Sometimes there's not a lot of thought in <laughs> which school. <laughs> sometimes the students go, well, they told me, and that's the one I picked. Yeah, yeah. It's now being someone who has to advise them on that choice. So I started my educational career you know, out of college. So I was just trying to, I was the one going to high school, was trying to pull them here. Uh, but now, you know, especially being on the West Coast, we, we've got CIA right here in Napa, but I'm obviously very still biased to New York. Um, to me, that's still Mecca. Um, but we have regional culinary schools here. Then there's the East Coast. It's mm-hmm. like, well, what do you want to do? I mean, my advice to anybody considering a culinary school would really come down to you need to go there. You need to go stage. You know, most will let you shadow for a day with a student to get a real feel for a day in the life. Um, you're spending a lot of money at some of these schools. Yeah. Make sure it's what you want. It it's sad to see some of my graduating class who very quickly gave up on their passions um, for the easy buck and went to go into a different field. And maybe they actually found a true passion because. With any college, you know, you go straight out of high school. Yes, I want to do this. And then you realize two years later, maybe that was a horrible idea. I really don't care about this at all. Right. But now you're fiscally bound. <laughs> well, so when you advise the students, how do you not only divide up but the culinary schools where they should look at, but whether it's an apprentice program or they should go for associates or certificate yeah. or if it's a bachelor's, how, how do you kind of guide them on, on that route? A lot of it starts with, well, how much passion do they really have? Uh, Are they out there? Have they actually worked in the industry yet? You know, while a lot of culinary schools have gotten rid of that requirement uh, of six or eight months work experience, right? That used to weed out a lot of people and it doesn't weed out people anymore. Right. So luckily where I teach, we have a required junior internship. All right. It's only uh, you know a couple of days uh, over a couple months, uh, but it's a little bit more of a unique thing, even in a public school. So right now we're about to send out, uh, even during COVID times, uh, we're sending out five students, a mix of culinary baking and hospitality into the world. And then when they're done, it's unofficial, but I always debrief them. Like, well, how'd it go? What did you like? What did you not like about it? How were the hours, right? Did you get a feel for what you wanted to get out of this? right. And it was just kind of a great experience and something that I wish more people had in high school to be able to test that mm-hmm. and having counselors who are like, oh, well, you have an interest in the culinary arts. Here, we have a culinary class. Maybe let's have you take that when you're a freshman. Let's not wait until you're a senior and then see whether you are going to be making a decision last minute or not. Right. Let's fan the flame as early as possible. That's really what I like to do with my students. And if that flame is even a little bit of a flicker, let's test it out. And probably to find out exactly what they want to do too, because yeah. maybe you've had this uh, experience as well as, as like I have, is that I get some students that don't want to be chefs in a restaurant. You know, they want to, I had one that was a journalist that was going in there so then they could write about food or something yeah. to be into maybe more media. So they might mm-hmm. not want to be a restaurant. And then in that case, probably don't go work in a restaurant, have your food truck. No, no. 
I was talking uh, just uh, this morning with my spouse because uh, she overheard me kind of teaching. I was teaching how to make cheese this morning. We made ricotta cheese uh, over distance learning. So it's really amazing what we can pull off with technology these days. But, and she made the comment that, you know, it's really nice to, to see that I'm showing my students also like what else you can do. Like if you're really into science, you know, you can really just go straight into R and D. Mm. That's very much a viable option. You know, you don't have to be a, a chef on the line. You don't have to be a baker working at two o'clock in the morning. If you still have a passion for food, but maybe you also have a pa- passion, passion, maybe you have a passion in biology. Well, that exists out there. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to be a mechanical engineer that exists out there, right? You can tie in most of any type of passions with food and there's a career out there for mm-hmm. it. Uh, what is it? The, um, I forget the name of the company, but they're here in the Bay Area and they're doing stem cell research on chickens and they grew a chicken breast, but then they invited the chicken to the barbecue. So they're having grown chicken, which is just a chicken breast, all right? But then the chicken only lost a feather to, to make that chicken breast. Uh, but it's like, but that takes chefs, that takes chemists, that mm-hmm. takes biologists all working together. So if we can influence these students early that, Hey, we, the future of food, isn't just chefs. Mm -hmm. The future of food is food systems and people that manage them and create these revolutionary products. You got to make that decision relatively early in life. Yeah. Maybe they should start out researching opportunities within the, you know, the food business, the hospitality Mm -hmm. industry. And then once they narrow that down, then they could maybe go try to get some experience, whether that's with a caterer or going into a restaurant or a food truck or something along those lines. Yeah, most definitely. It's just, it's all about making the choice. And I think we're doing a better job as educators now than we were 20, 30 years ago, where it was like, oh, you want to be a chef? Yeah, right. You know, you want to work in a dungeon somewhere, long hours for no pay? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can still do that if you want to. <laughs> uh, that exists. Um, and, you know, yeah, you go to culinary school. I remember, you know, being in the dungeons at CIA and there's no light of day. And, you know, you go in and it's dark out and you come out and it's dark <laughs> out. And I've had jobs uh, the same. Um, but now, like, if you want to do something where you just want to like make really cool crepes out of a food truck on Venice beach. Yeah, sure. Go do that. That's awesome. Right. You want to do like, just do like artisan chocolates uh, out of a ghost kitchen uh, and just mail order stuff. Cool. Awesome. You can do that too. Why not? If you got the passion, you can make a living. Go for it. That's, that's the key. That's the key. So the CIA, you'd already been there. You mentioned a couple of times as tours and stuff. So it wasn't like a big shock, like maybe it was to some of the other freshmen that are arriving on campus for day one. So uh, you felt a little bit more comfortable. Tell us about that first day. You know, obviously you got to get your knives and your uniforms and probably meet roommates mm-hmm. or at least, you know, fight, figure out where you got to go, <laughs> get your schedule. How was that for you? So it was uh, rather strange because it was almost like, it felt like, like just kind of, Went one town over. Uh, I've driven past it so many times, but now I'm like. Did you live on campus or did you stay at home? I did live on campus for a couple months. Side note: uh, back in the winter of 0506, a major flu pandemic hit the Hudson Valley. Vassar closed, Marist closed, Bard closed. Uh, the community college they all had to like close for a week. CIA never closed, but it hit pretty hard. And they've got communal bathrooms. So I'm like, you know what? I don't need to live on campus. I'm going home. I ended up getting the flu, but I got it like a month after everybody else. 
And that's what I, so I, I got a little bit of that college experience that way. Um, but I remember, yeah, my, your first day on campus on CIA, it's, it's something that as you reflect on as an upperclassman and later on, it's like the freshman walk of shame because <laughs> it's always the same yeah. uh, and maybe less these days because you can get eBooks, but you still have your knives. You go to distribution. Yes. You get your knives, you get all of your books because there isn't a, a bookstore book store on campus that gives you all this stuff. And they give you the cheapest bag to put <laughs> 50 pounds of books in. Um, and they don't tell you that you can like open up the knife kit and then there's like over the shoulder strap yeah. to like help you. No, you just drop everything. And depending on what time of year it was, I started in November. Uh, it's wet. It's cold. Now my books are wet and cold. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've all experienced that at CIA. Uh, and I'm guessing the pants are still on him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and you got to go through all of that. You know, you get your your ID card day one where you're half asleep because it's 7 a.m. and you're not used to the hours. So everybody's looks horrible. And now you got to live with that for like three to four years. Um, first day is is rough no matter who you are, because you can hear about it all you want from admissions. Oh, this is what you're going to do. And it, it's glazed with this beautiful varnish. And then you get there and it's like, I'm in some weird dungeon. Somebody's sizing me up for pants. And they're handing me this stuff and be like, oh, yeah, class starts tomorrow. I'm like, what? That was my introduction. Okay. It, but it sets the tone and the pace. So when I went to CIA, they were still on the old system where they were on the block system. Uh, every three weeks was a new course. Uh, five days a week, you're either AM or PM student. Um, and it's, it's quick. It's fast. It's building blocks. It worked for a reason. I don't know a lot about the major changes they've done really over the years, but I know from interns um, that I've had and uh, former employees that I had when I had my cake shop that they did shuffle classes around. They don't scream and yell quite as much anymore. People have feelings now that we have to take care of. Um, and it's funny because looking at that as an educator, it's like, I don't scream and yell. It's not <laughs> worth my time. Um, I'd rather just like shame the product you made. I'm like, you know, you could have done better. And I'm just disappointed that you know, you just cut some corners because that hurts in the heart. That doesn't hurt in the head, screaming and yelling. And we've all been there uh, in culinary school where you got publicly degraded by the chef and you were made an example of. Yeah. Let's talk about that because this will jump ahead because you, you're an educator now. You've been an educator. You've been at, you know, quite a few university, junior college. I think you went back to CIA and taught there a little bit as well. And now you're at the, you know, the secondary level and, and the high school. How do you see that different and, and how has education changed? How has the instructors, you just mentioned that, maybe their demeanor has changed. Can you talk a little bit about that, a compare and yeah. contrast between them? So I think it all comes down to where we are headed as an industry. Uh, I remember distinctly a lecture with Eric Repair when I was a student back in Hyde Park, where he came in. Uh, it was I think he had a couple lawsuits that he just survived, um, and it was all about I think it's when he found Buddh Buddhism at the same time, uh, or, or whatever he follows. I don't know. Mm -hmm. He had all the beads, the Kabbalah bracelets, and everything <laughs> when he showed up. But he made a really good point, like. We can't treat people like, you know, we're on, you know, a pirate ship anymore. Um, you know, the screaming, the yelling, the public degrading, the throwing of pans uh, to prove a point. Um, we are skilled artisans. Uh, we, we are people who should take pride in their work. Um, and he, he found that, you know, hey, that screaming and yelling didn't work anymore. Right. And I think a lot of people heard that 
uh, around the industry as he kind of started talking about it. And now we're going back to around 05, 06, 07, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. So it's been a stretch of time. And I think we're really seeing the professional kitchen evolve over time where, you know, we had me too. And so sexual harassment is getting better, right? right? It's, it's always been there and should it be there? No. Uh, should that happen? No. Has it happened? Yes. Can we do better? Yes. Are we doing better? Uh, yes. But that comes down to the educators and the people teaching them, whether it's uh, a degree granting program or a certificate program or apprenticeships, uh, any of these programs, we need to teach people how to treat people. <laughs> um, yeah. And we're seeing that more. And if I can set them up for success at the high school level, and when I'm teaching and I'm adjuncting at the junior colleges uh, in my area here, or I mean, CIA, I mostly taught in public programs and such. But if you can convey that, like, we're people with personalities, yes, <laughs> um, but that, you know, you have to be kind. And while we might have an argument real quick because it's hot, it's stressful, it can be humid, right? Things, uh, grease is flying, you know. There's fire around. There are sharp objects. These are very much, you know, tense things that we can have an argument. And the second we turn our back to each other, that argument is done. It's over. We've moved on. We're friends again. Mm -hmm. It's like nothing happened because we just got it out of our systems. Um, that we don't hold grudges in this industry. I wish other industries could respond like we do as chefs, where it's we fight one second and then we're hugging the next second and then the entree headed out the, the into the out the past. It's like doing battle. The battle's over, we can relax, go back to war. Right. We can relax because we got that tension out and it's gone. Yeah. But I think a lot of in education now, and you even see this in CIA, and I've talked to uh, former professors and chefs and friends who teach around the country, and it's like we are changing that demographic. And I think a lot of that has to do with getting people in as educators early. So we're getting less people going in to teach culinary arts where it's a retirement gig. It's not that, you know, you can't sling it on the line anymore. No, I want to be an educator in the culinary arts, baking and pastry, hospitality, because I want to impart that knowledge onto you and that passion. Right. So I think we're getting a change in education. Uh, less of the of the old guard, uh, you know, everybody's coming in from France and everybody learns French technique. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, okay, yes, you're learning French technique, but here's what they're really cool doing over here in this region of the world. And hey, they're doing the same classical technique. They call it something else. Right. You know, do we have to be so glued to five mother sauces, mother sauces that Escoffier wrote down when they're really international mm -hmm. when you look at them? And now you you also want the educators obviously to have some experience to be a content expert, but to be able to teach. So that's sometimes the hard part I've found mm -hmm. that when they come from industry, you know, whether it's a long time or a little time, you know, they, they have to make that mind switch. It's not, you know, you're on, on mm -hmm. the line. Now you're teaching. So what in your thought is a good educator? What makes a good chef instructor? You know, you hit that right on the nose. Uh, I've been on a lot of hiring panels uh, to hire people. And uh, often we use that test of, okay, teach me how to make an omelet. Don't just make an omelet. Okay, that's a standard, you know, test for, for a chef. Mm -hmm. Teach me how to make that. And then I can tell whether you can actually teach or not. Um, and a lot of it is personality. It's, you know, having charisma, having patience. A lot of times chefs coming out of the industry who want to be educators, they don't have the patience. No, you're not going to teach somebody how to make creme anglaise quickly. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen. <laughs> um, 
So the, that's really the, the major attribute that I think comes down to being an educator um, is just having patience and being able to dissect how something gets done. Whenever I'm kind of mentoring a new teacher, I, I tell them that you have to keep talking. I don't care necessarily what you keep talking about, um, but you need to keep people interested. Uh, and it's the same thing of whether I'm doing a Food Network thing or I'm doing a demo somewhere. You need to keep people captivated. But they'll change the channel, right? <laughs> yeah, they'll change the channel. And it's the same thing in a classroom, whether you're sitting in front of a whiteboard or you're sitting in front of a burner and you're teaching them how to make something. You have to stay captivating or you will lose them. Now, I remember when I was a student at CIA, they had us captivated in fear. Um, <laughs> but now it, you have to be able to be captivating in your voice, how you carry yourself, how you pivot around the room looking at people. It's all, it's, it's a dance, it's a show at the end of the day. You know, where we're a, a good teacher is a good performer. Mm -hmm at the end of the day. And, but at the end of it, that student can take a skill away or they can learn something and be like, oh, that was really cool. That was engaging. Like, I try to give it all to my students and then I will pass out later because I used all my energy on right, yeah. some crazy lesson. Uh, and that's important in education. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. Yeah. There's, there's a little bit of edutainment, right? As they call it in there, you, Completely. To, you know, you're on stage and that's why they're coming to you and rather than a book, right. Or watching a video, they yeah. want to see that live performance and to give the different examples and to share the stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and you, you kind of hit on it there with, with the books where I get a lot of people like, well, do you have a book to recommend that I can learn how to cook out of? And I'm like, well, I can reference you some books that are good for reference. So you can look at all the pictures and knife cuts you want, uh, but you still need somebody to show you the, the little things, how to properly hold the knife and why we hold the knife that way, how to properly yield the knife so you don't cut your fingertips off uh, and how to set up your cutting board and how to like set up flow. You know, you can read about a lot of these things all you want, but even these days, even like I'm successfully teaching the culinary arts uh, and baking and pastry over a camera, but it's how you do it. How do you get it uh, across to people is what really matters. Mm -hmm. Now, I've had past guests that have done a lot of competitions and they really thrive on that because it challenges them. It pushes them, gets them uncomfortable, helps them learn, and it gets to really you know promote their craft. So you just brought up Food Network. You've been four times, I think. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you get personally out of those competitions. <laughs> so I have to besides prize money or, right, or whatever right. that may be there from the TV part of it. I got I got to step back to like the uh, the macro look. Uh, at food network competitions, what food network or on Bravo or any of these networks, um, mm -hmm. they're entertainment, right? They are reality TV at the end of the day. Is this the real world? No. Uh, anybody who gets involved in competition, whether it's a sport or a cooking competition, uh, anybody who says otherwise, uh, that it's not part of your ego, I would definitely say is lying, <laughs> um, especially when it involves a televised thing. I mean, we've been doing culinary competitions for years. Uh, we used to have, you know, the Culinary Olympics. We've got Boku's Door. Someone who is in France doing Boku's Door uh, isn't worried about the visual of how they look on TV. They're worried about the food. Uh, and that's how I approach all the My Food Network competitions that I've ever done. You know, first and foremost, it's about the food. It's what I'm presenting. It's the visual of not as much me, but the food. I've gotten better 
at making myself look good on TV. Uh, my first time on there, I mean, it's difficult. It's hard. It's not just doing a competition. Competitions in food are hard to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in a new location. You're working with ingredients that might be the same, but they might be different. They might react different, especially like I'm originally from New York. Okay. I'm used to butter that you get in New York. Well, California cows, different, slightly different butter fat, pastry, things could react different. Yeah. So that's only one aspect of it all. <laughs> um, because then you slap a bunch of cameras in front of you, a producer that's prompting you with, uh, okay, we need to keep you talking throughout this entire thing, narrate you through. Uh, but no, you have to rephrase it like it's a question. Oh, you cursed there. Can you re-say that without saying the F word? Because you just screwed up. Um, so the making of TV uh, makes it a lot more complicated. Or like, oh, you're sweating too much. We have to powder your head. But the clock's still ticking. Oh yeah. Or your mic has come loose. Uh, don't stop moving. We'll have the mic guy come behind you. They'll never see this on TV, but it's all the all the mess in, in TV that you have to deal with to make those shows. And I mean, not all TV shows are created equal. Some of them are just about you know being ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Right? When I when I looked at um, like Chopped, right? I love watching Chopped, um, but some of the ingredients they get are just ridiculous. Right. Um, but it's cool seeing a chef you know, be able to think on their toes and like, what can you do in this industry to make something edible? (laughs) I remember seeing one of the, I think it was Top Chef and they put them into like a gas station and they had to get like Skittles and Twinkies and make a meal. I was like, what is that? That that would never exist. (laughs) That would never exist in the real world. Right. Um, But then like, even with the the cake shows that I've done, my first three appearances were all on cake shows. Food Network Challenge twice and then a show called Sugar Dome, uh, which aired for only a season. But like your height requirement is a minimum of six feet of vertical cake. Wow. Well, nobody orders that stuff. They can't afford it. The engineering, the thought, the design process that really goes into these things. Um, they can't afford for me to charge, you know, $10,000 for a cake because how much R&D had to go into it. And then the product trying to deliver something like that. I'm glad it only had to move six feet from the station to a presentation table. Uh, Um, But it's the same thing when you look at like chocolate showpieces and competition and sugar showpieces and bread showpieces, they're showpieces. And they're meant to just flex what a chef or a pastry chef or a chocolatier cake designer can do. Right. So what I do now, because I'm on the current season of spring baking championship. Um, It's been eight years since I've done a TV show. I wasn't a teacher at the time. When I'm now on the show, I'm thinking about how is this going to look to my students? Oh, right. How can I inspire a new generation or someone who's like on the fence as a career changer, maybe? So maybe they're they're sitting in their office uh, at an IT job that they've you know originally loved, but now they hate it. But they've got this passion for making bread. Well, maybe I can now take that moment to inspire that person to... Maybe go sign up for for a certificate, take some weekend classes and realize that, oh, hey, I can make a new career out of this and maybe I can take my IT job. I can now make a bread app, how to do bread at home. Boom. I've combined my passions and I can do something. with. It. So my opinion originally of Food Network competitions and, and just any cooking competition on TV was like, oh, these people are just ruining the industry. Um, you know, now everybody wants to make cupcakes for a living when that's just a trend and it's going to die. <laughs> How can we inspire them now to do more of like, oh, wait, he's having fun. He's making cool stuff. He's trying to make it look easy, even though I, right. I will fail at always making it look easy. Um, but if we can do that, 
I think we can bring back the spirit of early cooking TV. Yeah. Right. We can, we can bring it back to me learning how to dice an onion with Emerald, uh, you know, after I, you know, watched you know, the price is right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's definitely, you know, it's, it, as you mentioned, entertainment and, and, you know, a lot of fun. And as for culinary schools and, and teachers, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because it definitely brought a lot of students yeah. into our degrees and majors. But at the same time, it might have brought them for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. because they're all thinking they're going to go out and be, you know, the next Emerald yeah. <laughs> after two years. And, and they're not going to. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that happened before he got on TV. So maybe we can talk about that because I've done TV as well. And, you know, I've done it on the news and it's a three-minute spot. But the hours and the travel mm-hmm. and everything that goes into that three minutes and when they see you <laughs> on the Food Network and they see that 30-minute show or whatever, maybe you could talk a little bit about all the things that go behind the scenes yeah. and the prep and all of that that it takes to put mm-hmm. that out there. I, I think about the, the longest shoots I ever did was Food Network Challenge. Uh, when I saw like the call time in the morning, I'm like, what time do I have to be there? Um, because like you would load in stuff the night before. You'd load in all your core ingredients. Uh, with that show, we could have pre-baked cake in sheets, uh, basic shapes. Um, we'd have our fondant, we'd get everything in there, but we'd leave there at like midnight. And then, they, okay, yeah, you gotta be on set, ready to go. Uh, we're gonna get you into makeup at 5 a.m. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, I'm not even back to my hotel room yet. I have to wind down, I'll eventually fall asleep around two. And now I've got to do a competition on no sleep, what? Um, so that's like the first step of difficult. Yeah. Not to mention, you just flew there, you had to ship all your stuff. You had to pick it up um, maybe from UPS. You had to get a rental car. Maybe you have an assistant with you. You have to make sure they're eating because now you're kind of like under their care or you have to care for them um, because then the, you have the day. You have the day of. You go into makeup. It's so early that they have to get the dark circles from underneath your eyes away. Yeah. So you're in makeup. I'm bald. So it's a pile of you know anti-reflective on my head. Um, we do your hero shots here, introducing so-and-so from this place, make it look like you look cool. And let's do that 20 times because the first five times, maybe weren't cool. Yeah, maybe, maybe it won't look as good as we want, but really we probably took the first take of all of that stuff anyway. But then you got to do it for everybody who's competing. Great if it's a small show, not great if you've got like 10 contestants or a spring baking championship. We had 11, right? You have, wait, you have to wait for your turn or wait for them to all finish before you even start. Yeah, now. exactly. So even with that show, we had like a pre-day one where we did the intro. You're walking in and then, you know, now everybody does their hero shot. But once you get through 11, there's no time left in the day. <laughs> um, so let's actually start baking. We'll do that tomorrow. Um, but we challenge like we'd eventually around 10 a.m. We'd start the clock. But then it's an eight-hour challenge. No trick photography. No, nothing. No, it's eight hours start to finish. Uh, But then you have all the post stuff, right? Okay, step back 30 seconds from the end. We need to make sure we get all the really good takes. Make it look like you're finishing something, but don't touch it. Time has actually stopped. Uh, Don't actually touch it. So we lose some false stops. Then eventually they would reset everything. We go in the judge's table. But what I think a lot of people realize is you really get critiqued. Judge's table could last a long time. It could be 10 minutes. It could be a half hour. It could be an hour. Uh, Depends on like, how are things going with you and the judges right now? Are you guys riffing? Are you giving good material? But you really get an honest critique. And that's kind of the bummer is when you see these shows, you see a quick 30 second clip of how it was judged, but you miss some of the humanity in it of like, 
No, they're really giving an honest critique of like maybe the color of something or the taste, or maybe you just needed a touch more salt here. They're asking you how you did that really cool technique. Right. It gets too technical and too much technical jargon. jargon. It doesn't look good on TV. Uh, eventually, all that's done. You get a reveal of who won, who lost. You scarf down some food and it's 11 p.m. And then the next group is loading in at midnight um, for the next day's episode. So it's crazy. And for all that footage, all those 12, 15, 18 hours of footage on everybody on the show, they boil that down to what, 42 minutes with commercials. And it's like, damn, I worked so hard for 42 minutes and I'm really only in like 15 of it. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to take a quick pause right now and ask you, the listener of this episode, to sign up for our newsletter and mailing list. I left a link in the description, or maybe even easier, just to go to www.chefroach.com slash contact. That's chefroach, all one word, dot com slash contact. Then just go to the bottom of the page and sign up for our newsletter. It's free. Then once you're signed up, you'll never miss out on our latest news, announcements, episodes, contests, course information, or exclusive deals. So go ahead, sign up so you can get all the information and more through the periodic email updates. And don't worry, you can always unsubscribe if you don't like it. The link again is www.chefroach.com contact. So go ahead, do it now. We want you to be part of our community. And if you don't do it now, you'll probably just forget by the time this episode is over. So just hit the pause button right now and take the 15 to 20 seconds to get it done and then come back and hit play. We'll wait for you, I promise. Okay, hopefully you just did it or you've already done it in the past or at the very least, you'll be doing it very soon. Your support of the show and the network is very important to us and we thank you in advance. Alrighty, so now back to the show. Maybe you could give them a little visual uh, description of what ha- what it looks like, because they only see the set, you know, the beautiful part, right? And they don't yeah. see the backstage and, the, and maybe where the mm-hmm. catering is and then mm-hmm. the dressing room and the bathroom. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, because I know there's some listeners that are thinking maybe it's more glamorous than it is. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're... Uh, I can only really kind of talk about the, a lot of the past shows at the moment. Ask me in another year. I can talk about this one. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, when we filmed Challenge, we were on a soundstage in Denver. First off, nobody thinks that you're filming TV in Denver at all. Um, I was on, it was about the 13th season. So it was a very established set at this point. Uh, but with a lot of these shows, they're, they're one directional. So the cameras all face one way. So behind that is just a big black room usually. Um, every, and they're usually really cold. So while you might look like it's a nice, comfortable day, everybody on set is in, in hoodies, snow boots, because their feet are so cold, their hood is up, uh, they're freezing, uh, because you're doing a cake show and there's no time to put it in the refrigerator. So they've got the room at 40 degrees, <laughs> which is great for when you're running around and you're under the lights. But sometimes I feel bad for the producers right. and the camera people. Um But then, yeah, if you're the competitor looking out, you're seeing cameras everywhere, sound people, people just staring at you. And somewhere in the distance is like the judges. Uh, But they're looking at you on a monitor 
because there's so much stuff between you and them. They can't even see you. So it's those things of the magic of TV. You've got the green room again. Yeah. With all the snacks, all the food you can want. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's like, maybe I'm just going to wait to eat later and get some like, you know, food (laughs) delivered uh, because you don't know where it came from. But I had a great experience with food on challenge. They had this great caterer come in because I, again, it's established show or probably early on. It was horrible food. Uh, Standard set food is not the best. It's, it's food, it's nourishment. It has calories. There might be some vitamins still in that food, but you don't eat it because you love it. Yeah. You eat it because you need to eat it. <laughs> but this guy came in and he was doing like this full Vietnamese spread. Uh, and I was like, oh, wow, this is like good food. He cared about it. But then I did another show and I was like, yeah, we're going to order from Subway. I was like, really? <laughs> I just did a TV show on Food Network and now I'm going to go eat some Subway. Um, but again, this is not the Food Network's not producing a lot of these things. They're they're from smaller companies and such. But uh, the current production company was Spring Bacon Championship. We filmed it at a resort, so we were eating resort food the entire time. It was great. Oh, oh great! Um, but they also filmed it at a resort. So, how long does it take for one of those? Is it a week? You fly in and you're done, or a day, or is it you know depending on the show? I guess. So it depends on the show, really. Uh, with elimination shows, it's well, how long are you going to be on the show? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it could be a couple of days. It could be, you know, a month plus. It could be anything. Uh, with the one-off shows, usually it was a three to four day commitment. So they'd fly you in. Um, you might get your your pre-stuff in, maybe some pre-interviews, load in. You do the episode. And then how long do they need you for all of the interview stuff? So when they break to a shot of you sitting with some background behind you doing commentary, right, a lot of that TV stuff takes as long as it takes. So it's not uncommon for them to fly you out, but they haven't necessarily booked your ticket back yet mm-hmm. because they don't want to be on a set schedule. And at the end of the day, I don't think they care how much it costs. <laughs> <laughs> the sponsors are paying for it anyway. <laughs> right, right. Um, how, how does someone get into one of these? Do they apply? Do they come after somebody to looking for it? And then what do you do with jobs? I mean, I guess someone, if they own their own business, they take the time off. But if there's some pr- listener out there that's working at a restaurant, a line cook, they're going to have to take a week off or they're going to have to take this, I guess, vacation time. It's, it's, that's like the hardest part. Um, and as a, as a teacher now, it's the easiest part for me because <laughs> I can call up the superintendent and the principal and be like, Hey, Food Network called. They want me on this thing. They're like, go. We'll get you subs. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Don't worry about it at all. Uh, just go. Yes, you're going to promote our school? Sure. Go do that. Uh, but when I did the early ones, it was, I owned the business. Like, can I can I say yes to either, even this? So going back to your first question, like, how do you get on these things? There's so many different ways. Back in the day, it was all reference. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, if you wanted to be on one of these cake shows, they called you. So I remember that first phone call. Uh, I was driving to go finish a cake. Uh, and I always say the story, like, I did the right thing. I didn't pick up the phone while I was driving. It went to message because I was almost there. It was like five minutes. I'm like, I can wait. It's probably some customer wanting something that they can't afford or whatever. Mm-hmm. Some crazy request that I have to talk them out of. Um, but then I picked up the phone. I was like, oh, this is such and such producer from Food Network. Uh, give us a call back. We'd love to talk to you about something. I was like, wait, who from the where? How did you get my number? I was like 23 years old at the time. Uh, Is this a crank call? Right. That's really what I thought. It was just somebody like pulling my chain. Uh, Called them back. They weren't pulling my chain. They actually wanted to have a serious conversation. Uh, But back then it was just 
let's have a conversation. The interview process was basically nothing. Uh, you'd send them some, you know, piecemealed video uh, by somebody who still had a camcorder because our smartphones were crap at the time. You couldn't just take a video of yourself doing something. Right. Um, and, you know, then, you know, I, I was on the first show, but it's funny because I turned them down twice on episodes. This was uh, September, October. This is the end of the wedding season. This was my meat and potatoes. Uh, so I told them, like, if you still need somebody, like, in mid-November, I'm your guy. So I remember I turned down something with, like, these crazy bug episode on challenge, uh, which in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't have to do. Uh, there was another one, but then I said yes to Renaissance festival cakes, which kind of lined up cause it sounded fun. Yeah. Um, the second time I was actually out there three months later. So I did such a good job with the first one and they were happy with it. They were like, Hey, they actually wanted me to turn around really fast. Like, can you be here in two weeks? I'm like, no, I can't be here in two weeks. Uh, I still have a business to run. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's funny. I've said no to Food Network. I feel like more times than I've said yes, uh, which is kind of a good place to have to be in. Yeah. I'd rather have to turn them down. <laughs> uh, position of power. But yeah, I was right back out there doing the show. But then it was a couple of years. Uh, I had heard from one of the previous judges. Hey, there's this new show. It'll be up right up your alley. Let me put you in contact with them. Uh, and it was the same situation where it was much more casual. Now it's a whole nother beast. They have a regressive application process, uh, multi-tiers of levels. I think a lot of these competition shows on all the different networks have been burned too many times around people who look really good on paper. This goes back to like trying to pick a teacher. Uh, you might look good on paper, but can you teach? Right. right. You might look good on paper, but will you be able to perform on the show and look good? Not everybody's going to. So there's a lot of vetting that goes into the process. And a lot of that takes time too. You might have to take hours off of work to do all of this stuff. I know people who have like left their job with the hopes that at the end of it, they'll do well enough to move up, to do a better position. Um, you know, going into to spring baking championship, I mean, we've had a, a hell of a year in this industry. A lot of the people aren't even employed, yeah. but they've pivoted to, you know, having cake businesses out of their out of their houses or selling pastries under a cottage license, because that's what you've got to do right now. Um, but they're like, yeah, I'm a former pastry chef, but I don't even have work right now. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting time for them where they're like, yeah, I've got nothing but time. Sure. I'll come down. It's like, well, that's good for you. I'm shooting the show. I'm teaching my students distantly over a camera whenever I can. Then I'm also going back to like, why, why we're here, why we're talking, uh, school culinary school. I'm back at CIA right now doing their online master's degree. I was doing that all at the same time. Oh, way too much on my plate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so when you, going back to what we talked about with the, um, you know, what, what your goals are when you get out of culinary school and a lot of students, I'm sure you, you hear this from yours say, I want to be on the food network. I want to be a, a star. Yeah. You can talk right from, from experience that that is probably not a good game plan. That is probably the worst game plan you can have. Um, I fell into doing this stuff and food network for me, it's a hobby at the end of the day. It's a hobby. Uh, it's not necessarily, it's not what pays bills. I mean, you've got a certain percentage chance of winning some of these things. Back with the first shows I did, I had a 25% chance, and I'm sure you could run odds on it as, as well, um, but just walking in cold, 25% chance of walking out with $20,000, $25,000 after taxes, that's 
far less once, you know, California usually takes 30%. Um, but then all the stuff you put into it, like, you know, the, you, you think you're going to get all this business out of it. You think it's going to bring people in the door and immediately it does. And when there's a rerun, yeah, they'll remember you. Um, but there's so much content out of there. You're so forgettable. You know, if you boil it down to how many personalities are on some of these cooking networks, it's like five to 10 that people actually know. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. vying for one of those spots. I think it's it's like it's like Hollywood, right? There's yeah. The, there's the stars that everyone knows, the yeah. crews or whatever. And then there's all those extras. So there's the food network. You have uh-huh. the people, but then everyone else just comes and goes. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about that is, and that's why I vet my students. Like, what do you want to do? Why are you passionate about food, right? That should be the reason you get into this. You know, I love the reaction, and this is a personal thing. I love the reaction of giving a a plate of food, whether it's a dessert or something savory, or it's a cake to somebody and seeing their reaction of either the visual of it Mm -hmm. or that first bite. Um, I know with my tiramisu recipe that if I put that in front of them, they're going to take that first bite. They're going to close their eyes. And you can see that moment of like, wow, that's delicious. Though that's why I am a pastry chef. And that's why anybody should be a chef. If you're going in and for, you know, fame and the glory, you're destined to completely fail. You will never be successful on the food network. You should go to acting school, not culinary school. Exactly. <laughs> because if you want the fame, maybe that's the area. That's that's specifically it. I remember um I won't say what trying to be a celebrity chef it was, uh, but there was a show called The Restaurant way back in the early 2000s. Um, and I heard about a conversation he had with somebody else. So it's like, well, wh- wh- what are your goals of this? Like fame and fortune. And it's like, okay, if that's your goal, like why do you own a restaurant? Right. You know, your goal for owning a restaurant other than, you know, making a profit by serving food and beverage uh, should be like, Having a high quality product and serving good hospitality. Hospitality, sir. Helping. You know. Yeah, those are the reasons why you open a place. You know, you're getting into greed at that point. That's not being a chef. Okay, we're all a little greedy here and there. Um, yeah. But uh, at, at the end of the day, you have to look at your core values of like, why do you want to be in this? It's going to be long hours no matter what segment you're in. You know, you're probably going to, at some point in your career, give up nights and weekends and holidays, loved ones. You're going to miss birthdays. You're going to miss anniversaries, special events. It's going to happen, especially in the early parts of your career as you're establishing yourself. You know, you need to be willing to give that stuff up for a time right? with with much of our industry, not all of it, but much of it. Um, But yeah, just knowing what you want to do and how you want to get there, but getting into this game, wanting to be just a celebrity, that's, you should just stop right there. You can make cupcakes on Instagram, sell them to your friends, but stop right there. Get a YouTube channel. Get a YouTube channel, but then go pay the bills somewhere else. Right. Because if you look at the odds of actually landing on a show, I would get for spring baking championship. I got a phone call every season. They're on their seventh season. And for whatever reason, either I would decide or they would decide maybe it's not the right time. Uh, this time was the right time. So we're good to go. Let's talk about an, another area that students may want to go into, and that's they always want to oftentimes open their own business. You know, they want to, I want to open my restaurant, I want my own pastry shop. Mm-hmm. So what classes do you see that are important for that? I mean, it's culinary school. You should have those business classes, yeah. right? And, and when you went through, was there classes that you wish you had that you didn't now looking back? Or you think there's classes that should be taken, you know, if you want to go on that route? Mm-hmm. When I'm kind of looking back, uh, 
often, so I opened up my business only a couple of years out of culinary school and I had some really valuable classes. I can always remember uh, business planning with Gene Morris. It was an elective too. Um, so this was my, my junior or senior year. We got a couple of choices at CIA for electives and a lot of them sounded really fun. You know, oh, you know, beverage mixology. That sounds really fun. Love to do that. But I had to think of like, well, what's going to be helpful right. long-term? So I got myself into business planning. And that's when I wrote my the business plan that would eventually evolve into the business that I opened up, uh, Corsino Cakes. And it was probably the most valuable class outside of my, my skills classes that I would even take. Uh, in hindsight, I wish there were more financial classes. Hmm. So in my bachelor's degree, uh, you know, of course, you go through a regular accounting course, you learn how to use, you know, QuickBooks, there was a computers course on that, financial management. Um, but at the time, and maybe they have it now, uh, but at the time, I wish there were more application courses where it's like, okay, debits, credits, all well and good. This is a PL. This is how you you read a budget. This is how you build a budget. But like, how do you use it? Right? And and often we get that in the industry. But it, it's something that's easily taught. Like, okay, here's a scenario, right? Here's your budget. You know, this is how you, you read it. This is how you synthesize it. Now, what are you going to do with that information? I wish there was a class that was about that. And it's funny because right now I'm developing um, uh, a restaurant management course for Napa Valley College. Uh, just before this, I was writing curriculum for it. And that's those are the thoughts I have in the back of my head. Like, well... The P, you can have all the pieces, but if you don't have that moment of synthesizing all together mm -hmm. to put all the pieces that you're getting, I mean, often in culinary school, you get the pieces. Then you go on an internship and you assemble some of those pieces. You go to out to their bachelor's degree, you get more pieces, but you're missing that moment necessarily of putting those together. There's a like a restaurant class where you you hold a big event, but like I was the pastry chef for the event. I have no idea what was happening on the financial end. I have no idea what was happening on the marketing <laughs> on end. Savory or whatever. Yeah, yeah but because I got to I got to choose that one role, but I missed out on everything else, which was kind of a bummer. Um, and I don't, I can't remember if it was my fault that I kind of just like just did that one task. Uh, that or they stuck you in that role. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that's what it kind of was. Uh, it's getting a little hazy uh, all those years later. Yeah. So many memories coming back just by us talking about it. Uh, but I just wish, wish there was more of it. In hindsight, more business. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and when you're a student, you're like, I don't want any more classes. I'm taking enough. Um, but well, you look for the a lot of the students look for the easy one. Oh, I heard that's an easy yeah. day, or that's a good course, but they don't realize like this is your future, and this is what you're paying for yeah. now to take that knowledge later on. It's I want that hard teacher. About, I want to work for that yeah, grade. It's not like I know A's, <laughs> but I uh, can't do anything. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. It's like learning that material. It's like sometimes those grades get in the way. You know, if you could just do a pass fail or right. something, it would be so much better because you know then they'd really go for it. so much better. Uh, and and that leads to when I was a student, bakers didn't take wines. It wasn't part of our curriculum. They've since changed that. And I hate them all for it uh, because if I was to choose to take uh, a wines course during my associates, uh, it would have been pass, pass, fail. Pass would have done nothing to my GPA, but failed would have hurt me. Mm. And I heard the fail would have hurt me. And it's like, and that's a really hard course. And I'd be taking it on extra time. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because I don't want it to hurt my GPA. Uh, and I just, it's going to bog me down in the rest of my classes. And hindsight, I totally should have taken it. <laughs> but now I live in Napa which is like oh, you're good. a wine class. I can look out my window and see grapes. So <laughs> right. 
I ended up getting the education anyway. <laughs> but it's a good point because even at, you know, other schools, Johnson and Wales for one, you know, the culinary, they take dining room, they take beverage, they take, you know, storeroom class where the baking and pastry don't get that. No. It's still just as important. You know, they still need to be able mm-hmm. to serve. They need to know the storeroom and how they bring in, you know, receiving and purchasing. And they have changed that, luckily. Um, I know they, they shuffled things around because you'd end your baking and pastry associates uh, in the apple pie cafe. Well, now they've moved that up to pre uh, your externship where it makes sense. Uh, I think it's kind of a lot of reactionary of like, oh, you know, that would have been more helpful before. to get that experience before I went out in the real world. Hindsight. Uh, but now they get to go down restaurant row as well. It's like, I didn't get to do that. Uh, and, you know, maybe that would have changed by what I had, would have done post-graduation. I mean, I started CIA. I had sworn off cakes. I don't want anything to do with cakes anymore. Uh, I, I did it all through middle school and high school. I can decorate a cake. I've aced it when I was in those classes because mm-hmm. I'd already had so much experience. But I wanted to be a pastry chef in Manhattan because that's what you do with a CIA degree. Until I had that moment later on, I think it was my junior or senior year where I was, uh, a professor was like, oh, I need a cake. And he asked the class and I went like this, you know, looking down, like, I don't want to do it. Professor Pachetti's cool, cool professor. Um, but like, I don't want to do it. It's not my passion anymore. Well, everybody was like, he'll do it pointing at me. He'll do it. He'll do it. Uh, but then I had that eureka moment of like, you know what? I do love doing this. And I got back into cake decorating. Oh, good. But if I had restaurant row and I got more experience, you know, doing plate desserts on the line, I mean, my internship was at a hotel, you know, doing mostly bulk work. Um, but if I had gotten that experience, maybe my career path would have been vastly different. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. The path would have changed. You know, you don't know what have happened there. I just had someone on the show not that long ago, Ben Shelton, and he went culinary first because baking wasn't, didn't have an availability. So he took culinary until the baking opened up and then got baking. And he's a pastry chef now at a country club. But he's like, it's pretty cool when they call me up on the line and I can break down tenderloins or I could <laughs> jump in, you know, on the line if I need to because he has that versatility and he still chose pastry, but he had that. You know what? People always underestimate the baker. <laughs> <laughs> Especially now, because they see me as a, I'm a, my primary job title is I'm a culinary arts instructor. Uh, so when my students see me, it's funny that my students see me, the first show just aired, um, and they're like, wait, you can make those crazy cakes? Because I'm teaching them how to like break down chicken. Oh, they think you're the savory guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. They know that I had this past as a baker. And maybe they've seen some stuff and they've seen some old shows, but seeing me doing it now, they're like, why aren't we learning that stuff? I'm like, that's like level 50. You're at level two. Um, You're just not there yet. We're working there. You'll get there eventually. But yeah, make a two-tiered cake in, you know, two and a half hours. Good luck if you don't have some background on that. Yeah, rough. So speaking about your students, you're obviously an influence to them and influence to others, especially if they watch the show and stuff. Uh, Who is an influence to you? You know, who is uh, maybe one, two, three people, you know, growing up, maybe personally, professionally, that you want to give a shout out to, you know, why they they help mold you to who you are today? You know, when I... I still go back to people who even influenced me as far back as high school. I think about my first culinary teacher, Connie Zangline, uh, and, you know, she saw that flame and she fanned it and made sure that, you know, my application was into CIA, that I would get accepted, that I would follow the path that I was led uh, down and that I wanted to go down. 
you know, she's definitely, you know, number one. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I was also, uh, I was in marching band when I was in high school. We were a competitive marching band doing all this stuff. So it was really hard to balance everything. Uh, but my director, Rich Gillen, you know, he really taught me passion, you know, and how to, how to follow a passion. Was I the best musician? No. Arguably, I really wasn't even that good, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I could hold my own on the field and I, I can still play, you know, I, I play well. I was never going to be first chair, but I was a strong second chair. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, passion and how to drive and competition and how competition can be something that is value to you professionally uh, and in your life and, you know, be able to set goals and reach for the goals. You know, that's really something that you know, he kind of gave me when I think about my CIA professors, um, Rich Coppage, uh, he taught, you know, the, the, the science of kind of baking and you know, nutritional baking, gluten-free, sugar-free, things like that. Um, but whenever I'm back on campus, it's like no day has passed. Corsino, get in here. He sees me at the window. He introduces me to the whole class like this guy, cake business at the time, um, uh, or he, he's teaching now. Check him out. Hey, he's been on Food Network. Uh, you know, take him seriously, which was really funny. One day when I came in, I happened to just be on campus for whatever reason, strolled by Memory Lane, and my my uh, my cake shop. I had an intern, uh, Taylor. She was in class, and he's like, "Taylor, this is your boss. He used to be my student." Um, oh, but he's the type of person where I reached out to him a couple of years ago. I was writing a a paper on gluten. And when you write a paper on gluten and public perception, you call up Rich Coppage because he is the expert on gluten-free baking. And he was very happy to take that phone call. So he's still influenced me all these years later. Jean Morris, uh, who has since retired from CIA, she was my business planning professor. Uh, and she has been a mentor all these years later. Uh, and she'll come to me now and be like, oh, hey, she works at a, a small business thing, kind of advising people now. Uh, in her retirement, which like, oh, this person wants to make commercial pies. Can you please talk them out of it? Um, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, sure. I'll take that phone call. <laughs> Not a problem. Or there's also the other side. Can you help them uh, do this? So they have really been teachers that I always think about when I'm as a teacher now, like I want to be as good of a teacher as they were sure. uh, and, and just keep pushing that forward. And of course, there are more teachers and people who have influenced me. Um, you want to even just think about chefs who I admire their, their passion, their dedication. I mean, I love Massimo Batoro. Uh, Massimo's insane. He's Italian. I'm Italian. Uh, I've been to Modena and, you know, you can watch his kind of his story of being that rebel chef. Like it's cool. He's like a rock star in our industry. <laughs> I want to be the rebel rock star chef uh, <laughs> as much as my students are like chef. That's not cool. You know what you're doing? It's not cool. It's like, what do you know? It's cool. It was cool in my day. Um, it's not cool now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but those are those are the people who really kind of influence me now more. Even they've always influenced me. So let's talk about outside of the curriculum proper. You know, what do you what do you advise your students when it comes to like networking or getting involved with professional organizations or volunteering their time for events? How do you advise them on that? I would always say you need to say yes. And it's kind of just good general career advice. Uh, say yes up until the point you're comfortable enough to actually say no. Um, 
you know, I can remember back in culinary school where, you know, there could be some special events, uh, some gala that CIA is sponsoring. Uh, they need people. They need people to help, you know, cook for uh, or, you know, wait tables for. And you never know who you might meet. Um, you could be your internship. Right? You could land an awesome externship with Daniel Balud. Maybe he's not taking anybody, but then you happen to bump into him at some event in Manhattan and he sees that you're doing good work. And he's like, oh, do you need an internship? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, and, and you could land a really cool opportunity just because you first said yes to a chef asking you, hey, I'd like to bring you down for this event. Yes or no? Yes is always the answer. You know, you got to take off time from your part-time job. You know, you, you have to let one paper suffer because your career is going to be better for it. You say yes. I can think to my food and wine seminar during the bachelor's uh, in my junior year where standard CA food and wine seminar at the time was come out to Napa Valley. Well, oh, I never knew that I'd live out here. So I ended up doing that anyway. I'm just in life. Go to a winery on the weekend. Sure. Have some cheese. Sure. That was later in life. But I took the opportunity. My GPA was high enough to go abroad. Could I afford to take out more loans at the time? No, <laughs> um, but I'm glad I said yes, you know, to study food and wine in Italy for a month and the culture, you know, start off at a vineyard in Tuscany, end the day at uh, the top of the tower in Pisa, and then, you know, sipping good wine and eating good cheese and cured meats on the Arno. I mean, yes, <laughs> I got a grade for that. <laughs> um, but those cultural and worldly experiences, you know, these days, I think you can go to like China, uh, Spain, France, they're going all over the world. Say yes to those opportunities because they're not always going to be that accessible. Uh, you take those opportunities when you can. Uh, I, I had friends who were always tour guides and I would ask them like, why are you doing this? There are so many easier, you know, work study jobs at the school. Like you never know who's going to be on your tour. You just don't know. And they could slip you a business card and maybe you need a favor. Maybe you need that internship. Maybe you're, you're walking towards graduation and you don't have a job lined up yet. You can call them up and be like, hey, I'm looking for a gig. Yeah. And keep saying yes right? because you never know what can happen. Yeah, because it's, whether, it's, whether it's those study abroad, you know, the bigger trips, but as you mentioned, even the small ones, you know, those things on campus. Mm -hmm. We've had a Menards volunteer. You could be working elbow to elbow with a chef or even yeah. like some of the professional organizations, the American Culinary Federation meetings. You're sitting there or doing a volunteer event with an executive chef for the hotel, mm -hmm. you just bypassed human resources oh, yeah. and all those other hurdles. Now you're right there. They like you. Come on in tomorrow. You can get a job. And, you know, so networking. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about those connections. You know, being involved in ACF, it opens doors. I mean, we can we can be honest about, you know, the, the price you pay on a degree, no matter where you go, in what industry, you know, it can potentially open up doors. You go to an Ivy League school, you could end at the bottom uh, of, the, of the list, but you got a Harvard on your resume. You scraped through, you made it. Well, that's going to open up doors. Yeah. It's the same thing with CIA. You know, that door is going to be opened uh, and you're going to have so many opportunities to get your foot in that door, maybe in front of somebody else, um, just because the brand, you're going to have to back it up, of course. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to have the skills to line up with it. But yeah, I mean, get that stuff on your resume. All right. Get like, hey, I did this event. Uh, I, you know, worked with these people. Uh, yes, I'm a, a journeyman in the ACF. Uh, you know, as career goes on, you know, get those certifications, you know. 
for some people, they might just be letters at the end of your name on your chef coat, right? But they can also open up doors. You know, you want to be a certified master baker with the Bread Bakers Guild? Yes, do it. Does it take that much time out of your day? I mean, you got some paperwork to file. You got to pass a test. Yes, there's a practical, but any baker who's a proper baker can pass that test, mm-hmm. right? If you always got some skill uh, and you don't choke under pressure, <laughs> um, you know, you're going to be just fine doing a lot of these things. You know, CMC, okay, a little more difficult. Um, <laughs> certified executive pastry chef, a little bit more difficult. Um, but get going on a process with those things, you know. Uh, it's finally that I'm going to be rasting, wrapping my master's degree this summer, you know, because I just can't say no to things. I'll probably consider getting my certified hospitality educator, my CHE, yeah. because, hey, it's another thing to put on my resume. It's always about resumes. Yeah. It's never done. So true, lifelong learning. And speaking of that, you know, getting your degree and stuff, what's next for you after, you know, the next year, the next five years? Where do you see yourself going? Where's your journey going to continue? Oh, you know, a lot of people ask me that because not that I've jumped around a lot, but when I moved from the East Coast to West Coast five years ago, everybody was like, you moved. You had no job lined up. My spouse had the job, Um, but I didn't have anything. I had a really good resume and the hope that I could land a teaching job. And I was working part-time at CA at the time, uh, teaching in public programs, but they weren't ready to quite hire enough uh, full-time people yet. And I needed a job. And that's when I made the full jump into education at the high school level, which was kind of the direction I was headed. So five years later, uh, eight years total in education, um, I'm kind of thinking ahead. I'm a department head now. You know, I'm running the show uh, at Healdsburg High School. I've got 150 students. What's next? You know, what's the next goal? Because it's never enough. It's never done. Right. right. I'm thinking about like, well, how do we bring on uh, a part-time instructor? to supplement more courses? How can we grow my own program? You know, how can I grow my own brand? Um, You know, do I just want to teach? Do I want to get into consulting? I've consulted in the past and that's something I'm really trying to grow more now. And I've I've really built out my website to do more of it. Uh, I've been lucky to consult a little bit for a friend of mine down in Guyana and South Africa, Samara, who I graduated CIA with. It was like, oh, that was so much fun. Hey, it also pays too, but it's really fun (laughs) to do that stuff. And if we're not having fun in this industry, why are we doing it (laughs) Uh, at the end of the day? uh, You know, everybody asks like, are you going to do more Food Network stuff? I have no idea. Yes, maybe. I'll always take the phone call. I won't always say, I won't say no. Uh, Again, I'll always say yes. If they want me to do it, I'm going to say yes, as long as it works in my schedule. But competing, Mm, maybe, maybe not. Hosting, judging, I'd love to get into that. Uh, And that's something I'm kind of, hopefully I can get my feet into uh, I've been making some phone calls, see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, as we come to the end of our chat today, before we wrap up, is there any last minute advice or guidance that you could leave with the listeners? Maybe there's someone out there that you know wants to go into this industry or wants to go to culinary school. Um, what would you tell them? You know, when it comes down to it, you have to follow your passions. Uh, nothing breaks my heart more than when, you know, somebody – in somebody's life who wants to be a baker or going to color, work in hospitality, and they're squashed down by other people's opinion. No, you can't do that. No, you're never going to be good at that. Um, I would tell all those people, you know, and money, don't worry about the money. You can get scholarships. You can get funding. You know, if you're doing well in school, you can pay for it. You know, don't let that be something that holds you back. You know, it goes back to saying yes, 
right? And figuring out how it can be done. Um, I myself, like I, I'm the third kid. Uh, was there a lot of necessarily money left for, for me in college? No. So I had to figure it out, right? How am I going to make it happen? Uh, and, you know, when people tell you, no, you can't do it. To me, it's when you, you sit, you dig deeper and you make it happen, right? That's my biggest advice to people, whether it's a scholarship that you're going after or it's a competition uh, that you want to go to culinary school, follow that dream, right? Don't tell, don't let people tell you that, oh, you're never going to make enough money to pay off your debt. You know, if you're good enough and you care enough and you try hard enough, you're going to pay the debt off faster than you think you are uh, if you have the desire to do well and follow those dreams. That's great. Good advice. Now, how can someone get in touch with you if they wanted to, if they wanted to follow you? I mean, is there, do you have a social media presence or some way that they can get in touch? Yeah. So a lot of ways to get in touch with me. Of course, you can always check out my website. Very easy. DerekCorsino.com. D-E-R-E-K-C-O-R-S-I-N-O.com. Of course, all of my social media is also attached to that. But uh, if you really want to get in touch with me fast and really see what I'm up to, uh, check me out on Instagram at Professor Cake. Straight through, Professor Cake. Um, I'm also up on Twitter, Professor underscore Cake. Uh, I also have a thriving YouTube channel. Uh, you can check me out just by Googling my name, Derek Corsino. Uh, I'll pop up on there. I've got a lot of content. Hey, COVID times. Uh, I've got a lot of videos. I've had a lot of time uh, getting some, some demos up there as well. So if you want to learn to cook, you can check those out for free as well. But yeah, check me out on Instagram, check out my website. We can talk. Awesome. I'll put those links into the show notes too. So if anyone is listening now and wants to you know, look back on those, they'll be down there with the links that you can click on. Perfect. Well, that is just about all the time we have for this episode. And I want to first thank you, Derek, for coming on the show today and sharing your culinary school story with all of us. Really appreciate your time, your insight, and your honesty. You know what? Thanks for having me. It's good to kind of go back down memory lane. Well, thanks a lot. We appreciate all your time. Bye-bye now. Bye. And a big thanks and appreciation also goes out to all of you, the listeners. We hope you enjoy the show and this episode. You all are a big part of this show, so please let us know what you think. Your comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. You can email them to culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. That's culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. Or even leave us a voicemail at area code 207-835-1275. That's area code 207-835-1275. And if you like the show, we have a big ask of all of you, and that is to share the podcast with everyone you know, and to give us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, until our next Culinary School Story, take care and be well. Bye-bye. Culinary School Stories is a proud member of the Food Media Network.